There was nothing about Adolf Hitler's life that would suggest that he was going to become a great leader with incredibly powerful rhetorical skills, with the capacity to arouse people to a state of frenzy with his powerful words. He was never trained in formal rhetoric. He was described as an introvert by people, a quiet bookworm when he was in Munich. He was called a shy loner by his comrades in World War II, but by all accounts, he sort of just discovered or manifested a mystical talent. This was an observation I saw a Twitter user make recently about Adolf Hitler. And it made me think about something that Jung said about Hitler. Jung had been around Hitler, he'd been to his speeches and some meetings, and he described him as having a shamanic presence. He was sort of gloomy and introverted, but something inside of him was huge. He had this big spirit. Now, over time, Jung began to realize and think that Hitler had allowed himself to become a vessel for the Germanic people's oversoul, or as you might know, Wotan. And this meant that Adolf Hitler's voice and his powers, his capacity to articulate these incredible rhetorical skills, perhaps even his ability to manifest these skills out of nowhere, Jung was thinking to himself, did this come from somewhere else? Now, this notion that you could gain powers almost by magic was not actually too strange to Jung. It was not something that unusual. He had seen it happen actually quite a lot throughout his life. In the Archetypes of the Collective Unconscious, he discusses a female patient that he had. She was struggling with anxiety and depression. She was not really an artistic person at all. She was quite sort of like one of those formal, conscientious types of people. But she was struggling with a period of her life, and so she came to Jung and he got her to paint her dreams. He got her to pay attention to her dreams and then begin to try craft them, manifest them using the art of painting. Now, she had never painted before, she had zero training, but she began to create these vivid and well-formed mandalas. She almost intuitively developed this skill, this sense of form, color, and brush. She said that her dreams were guiding her hands, that her mind had this sort of feeling inside of it about what was the intuitive right way to do something. And when she trusted that and followed that and pushed aside her rational mind and let this other part of herself manifest, she just started to paint these perfect circles like some type of Buddhist in a trance state. There's other famous examples of this. There's this phenomenon known as the Holy Spirit giving people magical powers. I had a friend who recently was going through a crisis and he was telling me about his mother and his mother used to tell him a story about one of her ex-boyfriends and he was French and he could speak French but when he would go to sleep he would start sleep talking in Aramaic and Hebrew he knew that language but when he would wake up he didn't know the language and this is quite strange <laughs> like how does his how does his dreaming mind know Aramaic when he's never formally learned it when he's awake there's something very very bizarre about that and of course, Carl Jung himself went through some form of this with his Red Book. He had this mental breakdown in 1913, and he began to have these extremely intense visions. And with no formal training, he developed this uncanny ability to illustrate what he saw. When you look at the art that comes out of the Red Book, it actually looks genuinely high talent. It looks very unique, very, very idiosyncratic. It's incredibly well put together. The colors are magnificently produced. And Jung was in some sense just following his dreaming mind, trying to express something within him. I've had experiences this with, of, like this with making music, where I'd almost like grab an intuitive feeling inside of my dream mind or my, my heart or something like this. And the song and all the lyrics and the form would just pour out of me. It's a strange feeling, but it's very much a real thing.
Now, this alone, this spontaneous manifestation of skill, is somewhat incredible. It's very, very weird. But this comes along with more than just that, more than just being, being able to make, you know, illustrate better pictures or make nice songs or something like this. These usually come along with prophecy, with these sort of mystical, intuitive powers. Jung's Red Book was all these great visions of fields of blood and dead corpses. And of course, this happened the year before World War One, And Jung was freaking out, saying to himself, oh my God, I'm going crazy. I'm going crazy. I'm seeing things. I'm, I got to blow my brains out. He used to sleep with a gun underneath his pillow because he thought something bad was going to happen to him. He thought he was going to you know, wake up naked the next day, covered in oil, and everybody would be laughing at him or something like this. He was going to go batshit insane. And instead of facing that humiliation, he was saying he should off himself. But then World War One kicked off. And he started to see all these visions he was having manifest in real life. All these people going into the trenches and murdering themselves across Europe. And he was relieved. He was saying to himself, yeah, baby, I'm not crazy. Yeah, war, thank God. <laughs> I'm not a crazy guy. Of course, everyone else is like, you kind of sound like a crazy guy now, but whatever. And he realized that, of, of all things, in this very rational age, he kind of said to himself, I, I think I just channeled a prophecy. I think I was just possessed and some type of visionary future poured through me and showed me something. And in order for me to receive this prophecy, to become a vessel for this prophecy, I almost had to be destroyed as a consequence. Now, to go back to Hitler, you have to understand that Hitler had stuff like this surrounding him as well. Very eerie, weird coincidences. There was a gentleman called Franz von Stuck, who was a German symbolist painter who liked to do stuff like channeling his dreams and his imagination and manifesting what he showed. And in 1889, which is the year of Hitler's birth, he painted a picture, which I'll show you now. Now, this picture is a picture of Wodan, the German god. And the subject of it is the wild chase, Wodan, the hunter god who stirs people up into the wild chase. Now, if you look at this very closely, first of all, it's got an eerie feeling to it generally. But look at Woden. He looks like Hitler. Now, Jung wrote about this in his essay called Wotan, where he discussed this problem. He discussed that Wodan, this ancient energy of the Germanic people, was waking up again. And that many things that were happening in this moment were being driven by some type of mystical force that was possessing everybody. He believed that Hitler became a voice for Wodan, and then the Wodan within all the German people was stirring things up into a frenzy. He went on to talk about how the, the German... Christian religion, the Protestantism, is not necessarily Christian. It's almost like a, a kind of a cover that Wodan wears. The Protestant God is not the God of the Bible. That is Wodan coming in in a skin suit, coming to to kind of dance around with people and, and call people on to, to madness and frenzy. It is the racial soul, the oversoul being born through the churches type thing. Jung himself was in the presence of Hitler many times. He noticed Mussolini, for example, and he'd look at Mussolini and see in Mussolini this sort of like masculine, manly, kind of like Andrew Tate type character, you know, being like, yeah, bro, yeah, motherfuckers, like Mussolini's a big square jaw, big super Chad type character, creating fascism, creating this military state, all these types of things. But Hitler was different. Hitler was demure. Hitler was mystical. Hitler was like quite silent, the type of guy that was looking down at his toes, but then he would look up and he would have like vivid power. He had some type of like magical energy surging through him. And Jung actually made eye contact with Hitler once. 
Jung made eye contact with Hitler once, and Jung, again, being very sensitive to this type of stuff because of the Red Book and all that, he made eye contact with him and he felt this huge feeling rush down him, like a chill running up his spine that was extremely overwhelming. It was like he could feel the energy coming out of Hitler's eyes. And Jung was so freaked out by this, so scared, that he left Germany the next day before the war and that was it he was done with it he was like that's bad juju right there I'm not I'm not going with this as well and he wasn't the only person who spoke like this Ernst Junger who was a famous World War One veteran and um, a very compelling and amazing man he was like you know pretty hardcore Nietzschean he you know he was a big supporter of the, the German nationalist movement he hated communism he hated liberalism he hated all that left-wing nonsense but he became very jaded with the Nazis during the war. He was in Paris and he, he was echoing these observations that Jung was making. He was talking about that there was this like force swirling around that he didn't quite like. He described Hitler as Nilbolo, which is this like censorship that he had to do. He had to create like a fake name about him and he wrote these um he wrote these novels about it. And he described him like Neil Below is sort of like a play on Neil to Diablo or Neil to the Devil. And he was talking about Hitler in these types of terms. He was worrying out loud that by us Germans abandoning our social bonds, we have unleashed something subterranean, something, something deeper, something older, something more wild. But quite a famous aspect of this is the, the Nazi occultist. You know, you hear about this on the History Channel. It's kind of, it's a little bit cringe, but there's definitely some truth to this stuff. There's, allegedly, there was this Vril society or Huel society. Vril is almost like the Nietzschean idea of will, Vril will. This idea of these, these old pagan magical rituals that were set up in these magical societies. Because the 19th century was quite a, a Jungian irony, you know. The 19th century was probably the most clear-headed, rational century in all, all of recent history. But it was balanced by this deep fascination with the occult. It was like the shadow of 19th century Christian rationalism and scientific rationalism was balanced with this, these, these guys going in and doing like Ouija boards and stuff like this. And so the Germans in the early 20th century had sort of developed one of these, a neo-pagan magical ritual. Where did we get these oracles, these young women, these beautiful Vril maidens that would have been these Germanic Valkyries? And they, these women would go into trances and they would contact some type of like astral plane. They would get into the fifth dimension and they would start to channel stuff, just like we were talking before. They would access, maybe in Jungian terms, the parts of their unconscious or perhaps they were, you know, going into the fifth dimension, as we said. And they would allow stuff to flow through them. And a big part of this was that they would gain knowledge. Now, the, the mythos, obviously we don't have an awful lot of stuff affirming this other than hearsay, but the mythos is that they would channel this vril and in this they would be presented with new technology and new ideas and, and visionary projects and whatnot. And this sounds a little bit wacky, but one thing that the Allies noticed when they went into Germany is that certain parts of the German war machine were unbelievably advanced like people don't quite understand how crazy world war ii was the nuclear weapon like what type of futuristic sci-fi super bomb is that that's the most bizarre thing probably ever to come out the next the next thing up from that would be like space lasers now another side of world war ii that was just beyond belief crazy was the arrival of rocketry the arrival of the ability for us to you know shoot these giant missiles into outer space that they can fly all across across the world like you think about the the the, the super weapon of the modern age it is a nuclear ballistic missile a thermonuclear rocket that can shoot across the world. It's the combination of those two technologies. 
And this was something that really came out of Germany, of course. Where did NASA come from? The Allies came in and they found all these incredible German engineering projects that were so advanced, that were building all these rockets, like the V2 rockets they shot into London. And so they said to themselves, you know what, lads, maybe we'll cut you a deal here. You know, maybe, maybe we won't, like, you know, stick you up in Nuremberg and put you on a trial. Maybe what we'll do is we'll bring you over to America and you can teach us how to do this stuff. The Soviets went in and they were doing that thing as well. They were like, all right, let's get the Nazi scientists. They're fucking genius. I don't know what they found out here. Now, some people speculate that a big part of this was, oh, this was them channeling some type of some type of pagan force and this force this was giving them this spontaneous superpowers these occult powers were giving them the ability to develop these advanced technologies and again i don't think people understand how bizarre and weird the thinking was at this time the nazis and these german engineers were thinking an awful lot about space which is a very unique thing i don't think people really wrap their imagination around what it must have been like back then. For all of human history, we were imprisoned to the floor. The heavens were up there, something that we cannot access. And in this short window of history from about the mid-1800s until around about 1960s, 70s, there, and Elon Musk is trying to resurrect it, there was this obsession with reaching the heavens, going up into the sky. And it's really reflected in World War II. World War II really kicks, is the beginning of all this stuff. It never really fulfilled itself. But you can see that that energy being burst and of course NASA filled with Nazi scientists developed that fully into the space race and into you know traveling into outer space and, and shooting rockets up in the air and the shuttles and all this but the Germans were doing all sorts of crazy things thinking really differently about physics and how to use engineering how to use all this stuff they were um, when the Allies went in they would find all these just crazy attempted projects like some of them obviously weren't really going anywhere but some of them were like weirder than you think one famous one is um, they they were planning to do stuff like set up sun disks so they were creating satellites that they were planning to shoot up into the air almost like a mirror and then the sun would shine onto this mirror and then they'd be able to like like bill gates you know creating a a ring to block out the sun they'd gather the, the mirror and then aim the sun down onto the earth and it would shoot this um this this beam of light this focused beam of sunlight basically creating a laser beam out of the sky think about that so the nazis were planning to send this stuff up and all the allies would be coming in and be like let's get these guys and then this giant pillar of like energy would just shoot down from the sky and just incinerate everything around them talk about crazy hi-fi thinking how wild is that when you really wrap your head around it and there is another very famous manifestation of this where at the beginning of rocketry and space flight and the question of how do we get up into heavens to create super weapons to attack our enemies the idea of like a phallic rocket was a big deal and the Germans very much invested in that but they were also exploring the disc the flying saucer the UFO like this was a one proposition for how they would develop these rockets that was one way that they would try to do this stuff they would create some type of like spinny whippy fly thing and they were looking at energy sources one of them was rocket fuel of course the ability to get petrol that could like was so purified that it could just blast things up into into space but also the question of like could we utilize as we were saying solar energy in some interesting way they're the original environmentalists over there in Nazi Germany they're figuring out solar power or light power in some sense There's some of them were exploring stuff like anti-gravity they were also exploring nuclear energy in their own unique way and this all this techno advancement was a big deal back then and a big big focus now, Jung in his essay on Wodan was talking about how 
all this energy that was going on in Germany that, that led to this very interesting and creative movement in many ways was something that was building up over generations and Hitler sort of became the final mouthpiece, the final manifestation of this in his mind. But Jung points out that like it was existent in people like Nietzsche and Wagner. He believed that Nietzsche was actually possessed by this Wotan in and of himself. Now, of course, Nietzsche was growing up in a school of philosophy and philology where they were big into like classical Greece and the ancient world and stuff like this. And so Nietzsche's mind was very much crafted by this rationally. But fundamentally, he was he was picking up on this energy stirring inside the German people. And so Nietzsche misidentified it as, as Dionysus. He called it this Dionysian will that he was talking about. But really what he meant was the Wodan was being born again. Wodan, the storm god, the hunter god, the god of the wind. And you notice in an awful lot of Nietzsche's poetry and an awful lot of the way he talks about Zarathustra is that there's this constant use of this imagery of the storm, the thunder and weather imagery. Jung in the essay talks about an experience that Nietzsche has. He says this, quote, this remarkable image of the hunter god is not a mere figure of speech, but is based on an experience with Nietzsche had when he was 15 years old. It is described in a book by his sister, Elizabeth Forrester Nietzsche. As he was wandering about in a gloomy wood at night, he was terrified by a blood-curdling shriek from a neighborhooding lunatic asylum. And soon afterwards, he came face to face with a huntsman whose features were wild and uncanny. Setting his whistle to his lips in a valley surrounded by wild scrub, the huntsman blew such a shrill blast that Nietzsche lost consciousness. Nietzsche's such a soy boy sometimes, lads. But he woke up again in um, Proforta, in the, the area he was living. It was a nightmare. It is significant that in his dream, Nietzsche, who in re reliability intended to go to Luther's town, Luther's hometown, discussed with the huntsman the question of going instead to the Valley of the Germans. No one with ears can misunderstand the shrill whistling of the storm god in the nocturnal woods. So, of course, this is the style of thinking that Jung is huge into. He loves reading dreams and finding these types of symbols and, you know, deriving a broad, creative understanding of what's going on. And so you see in Nietzsche's life these dreams that show up, these significant dreams. And Jung always knew to pay attention to significant dreams of Nietzsche experiencing the hunter, the storm god. He, Jung is sort of suggesting that Woden visited Nietzsche in his dreams and took possession of his soul at that point. Now, of course, Nietzsche was a student of Wagner, Richard Wagner, who was the great artist prophet of the German nationalist movement. And this great artist prophet, Nietzsche and him often clashed. In some sense, Nietzsche and Wagner are a representation of the war for the soul of Germany and what Germany was going to mean, because Nietzsche talked about this an awful lot. He was very critical of the Germans, but he would say in Twilight of the Idols that the Germans have an incredible wealth of potential, probably some of the highest potential in the entire world at the time. And he was just very concerned about how it was going to be spent, because he understood, looking at like Napoleon, that Napoleon was a representation of the great man who came to spend all the energy of France that had built up over centuries. And Napoleon was magical in the way that he took over the world and, and released this new energy into the world. But in some sense, he spent it badly and he squandered a great heritage and it ended up turning into nothing and just leading this sort of like hollow liberalism that we're struggling with right now. And Nietzsche realized that the Germans were going to be the next people rising up with their creative arc. And he was very much worried about that. He was like, look, we've got all this incredible potential and energy. We, you know, we're feeling the vibes building up. And how are we going to spend this? 
and Nietzsche was hanging around with Wagner when he was younger and Wagner was full of this Wagner was like you know coursing through the energy actually if you want to understand Wagner I think Lord of the Rings is a brilliant way to get it because Tolkien sort of stole much of the conceptions of Lord of the Rings from Wagner like the, the ring cycle is basically the plot of Lord of the Rings or the establishment of what's going on there and so Wagner's building up this sort of Nordic mythos this energy and of course he's channeling that oversoul that racial conception and that racial spirit that's inside the Germans that was waking up at that time and Nietzsche gets entranced by this and Nietzsche comes in and he hangs out with Wagner and he writes The Birth of Tragedy where he discusses Dionysus and he discusses the purpose of art and he discusses the purpose of building up this vitalistic energy so you can, you can, you know, you can express this and feel the will to power come back and all these types of things. Later Nietzsche got jaded with it. But Jung was pointing out that Wagner through diving into himself and his dream world and bringing out these incredible this incredible futuristic music and all these new archetypes and this new mythos and establishing this theater a th a theatrical a ritual around himself Wagner sort of like built up these these great festivals that would build up this energy inside the German people what, what Wagner was really doing was he was unleashing this new energy or really giving it potency and unleashing it into the German folk and both of these figures were monumental catalysts for an uncanny new spirit being born in Europe around about this time. An awful lot of people struggle with the conception of the Nazi movement. They think that the Germans were just like walking around in the 1920s and then all of a sudden they just went ballistic and they're like, blah, 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 let's just go and start burning everybody alive and going crazy. But that's obviously a very childish way to understand this. The Germans were building up this spiritual collective energy for, for generations, you know? They started in the, after Napoleon had defeated them and, and all this, they started to gain potency over the 19th century. And in the, er, the late 19th century, Nietzsche fought in this war, actually. The Germans fought against France and they had a war against France and they beat them. This was the Franco-Prussian War. As I said, Nietzsche participated in this war. This was a big part of his life. Now, this was the beginning of this energy. This was when a gentleman called Bismarck was hanging around, a great organizer, and he actually created the conception of Germany. He created the nation at that point. Now, this nation was a large group of people who were the most educated and talented people in all of Europe, the, the realm of Gothe and the poets and a very, very talented people. And the purpose of this group was a big deal for Nietzsche and big deal for Jung. Like, look at the fact that we're always talking about characters like this, like a couple of centuries on, because this is how significant the intellectual capital and the creative capital was coming out of these people. And so Germany was formed and then this energy was carrying forward in the generations and it was going to be spent and it was spent first in world war one and world war one was this just bizarre war it's so hard to wrap your head around what actually went down there you had young for example having the red book seeing the end of the sort of european pax romana the great peace and then you had these German soldiers charging into battle with the Bible commissioned to them, and also thus spoke Zarathustra. And this was the sort of launching of a new spirit, the new Nietzschean thus spoke Zarathustra spirit, combining with the old Christian one, moving forward into this new era. And of course they lost that war, but the energy was not spent, and so it purified and became more, more intense. And then this is when it manifests in the Nazi movement, and 
basically takes its final swing at what is the meaning of Germany. And of course, it gets defeated, crushed from both sides and essentially gets neutralized. And the energy is spent and invalidated and destroyed. And the, the will and the energy in the future passes on to Russia and America as a consequence. And these characters were the sort of channelers of that force, of whatever spirit was inside the Germans at this point. Nietzsche, Wagner at the very, very beginning, and Hitler at the very, very end. And again, there's so much stuff that stacks up with this. The last symphony orchestra, the last song that was played in Berlin before the fall in 1945, was all the Nazis sat down and they listened to Richard Wagner's Twilight of the Idols, Fall of the Gods, or Ragnarok, where they they have this beautiful song at the end after the hero Siegfried dies. And they're all there as like, you know, the Soviet uh, artillery is dropping around them in this, these ruined buildings, playing this absolutely gorgeous, epic music that's talking about the death, the end, the, the ruin of Germany, the spending of what was going on. And so whoever Hitler was, he seemed like some represented him some vessel for this energy, this final bash of Woden, this final attempt of Woden to claim his place in the sun. Jung believed that Woden was ultimately a trickster who, who was fooling the German people. He was a wanderer who kind of stirs everything up into a frenzy. He was a false god, a false idol as far as, as Jung could see him. And so he was actually sort of leading the Germans on and getting them to spend their energy in the incorrect way. Nietzsche also talked about this an awful lot as well. Um, and throughout Hitler's life, he had all these experiences that continuously verified some type of like mystical experience, some type of importance to his life. For example, quite a famous story is that in World War I, Hitler was actually quite a decorated soldier, very, very known for his bravery, his cool-headedness, his willingness to face fear. He was a messenger, a runner, so we had run up to the front lines through like bombs and everything to give information and intelligence. He was uh, quite a talented soldier. Now, during this war, in August 1934, he was talking to an English friend, um, Ward Price, G. Ward Price, and he revealed this story. He, while he was in an area of intense combat near Picardy in autumn 1915, he was under much psychological stress, of course, which was scary. He was eating dinner out of a tin can in a trench with several of his friends. He then recounted that a voice came to him that said, move. It was so clear and so insistent that he immediately obeyed almost like a robot, as if it, he had been given a military order. He stood up, walked about 20 yards along the trench, carrying his dinner, and then he sat down again, and his mind once again fell into rest. He became calm. Seconds later came an explosion and a flash, and a loud, loud bang, and from the area that he had just left, he walked back, of course, to check what had just gone on, and a shell had just landed. It had killed every single man that was in the area that he had just left behind. And of course, another very fascinating man was Napoleon, who described very similar experiences. Napoleon said that destiny urges me to a goal of which I am ignorant. Until that goal is attained, I am invulnerable, unassailable. But when destiny has accomplished her purpose in me, a fly may suffice to destroy me. And this is, of course, exactly what happened to him. He was invulnerable, super dominant. And then once he had achieved a certain goal or got to a certain level, he made a massive blunder like Hitler by charging into Europe, charging into Russia and got wrecked and ruined. And within a couple of years, he was basically a nobody without any power. And the entire project of France had been eaten alive by the outside powers. 
Now, Napoleon wrote and talked to many people around him about an experience he often had of somebody called the Little Red Man, who would visit him and talk to him about his destiny. Now, this Little Red Man was not Napoleon's Little Red Man, but again, very similar to Odin. This Little Red Man visited other famous French figures in their long history. This peculiar spirit was long considered a harbinger of tragedy. And it is said to have been first sighted in 1564 by Catherine de Medici, then Queen of France in the newly built palace in Tellurius. I think that's how I'm pronouncing it. She described the creature as being gnome-like, dressed in red, and immediately recognised that he was not a physical person, but instead was an omen of bad luck, a spirit. Now, this spirit was also seen by Henry VI, the morning of his assassination. This kind of reminds me of Julius Caesar, who was warned, beware the Ides of March. And of course, on the Ides of March, he was murdered by everybody in the Senate. And so Napoleon met this spirit in Egypt in 1798. And he was working his French military campaigns against the Ottomans. And the little red man apparently appeared to him in his tent and told Napoleon that he had 10 years of victory to come in Europe. However, he warned that the Egyptian campaign would not work out. And he told him that when he returned, France, England, Russia and Turkey would have aligned themselves and surrounded France. And by 1804, a couple of years later, Napoleon was the emperor of France. And in the years since the meeting with this little red man, apparently he'd been seen by quite a few people around the courts, from guards to Josephine. And one visit, one experience was witnessed by one of Napoleon's most trusted generals, Jean Rapp. And he said that he went into Napoleon's quarters where he found Napoleon staring out the window. And he called out, he said, yo, Napoleon, do you want a baguette? You know, what's going on? Should we get a, some frog's legs, Napoleon? And upon saying this, from calling out to Napoleon, he got no response. He believed that Napoleon might be maybe stressed or he was about to faint or something like that. So he kind of rushed over and said, what's up? And then Napoleon span around and grabbed his arm and asked them, can you see the red star of destiny, almost as large as the moon and brilliant, shining outside the window? And he, Napoleon explained that this red star never abandoned him and often came to him in the form of a man. Now, of course, this is all very speculative. You can make of this what you will. I just all think it's funky stuff. I think it's very interesting. And there's definitely something to it. Working with young, spending time with the dream world, you start to realize that there's more going on to our minds than we think. But obviously, it's hard to categorize and define this stuff. It's hard to turn around and say, how do we put this in a way that Richard Dawkins is going to enjoy? I'm not too sure. I think Sam Harris might freak and freak out a little bit if we explain to him this type of stuff. But there's something there. There's something to this idea of gaining powers by interacting with the dream world. Is there a way that you can do this stuff? Is this what we mean by magic? You know, we, we sacrifice something to God. We do a deal with the devil. You know, we give the, the other world a part of our souls and allow it to channel itself through us and we gain powers. Did the Germans conduct a giant project of collective magic and summon up rocketry and supreme powers and almost create this new paradigm of human existence? Is there some type of problem with that? Did they do that at the great expense of allowing themselves to become possessed and become fooled by Wotan or some type of occult pagan figure who played a trick on them and led everything into catastrophe because it is very true the Germans built up all this energy as Jung noticed but he was worried about it he saw it as something to be wary of they built up all this frenzy this Wotanic frenzy but what did it result in in the end this is not a game this is not child's play there is a real danger of them getting caught up in something kind of spasmodic 
And in the end, the Germans, all that they had to show for it was Berlin was in ruins and the Soviets charging in and destroying the entire Eastern Empire and enslaving them to communism. The, the Allies, you know, firebombing Dresden into an incineration of fire. The German people destroyed and ruined, starved. They're all genocided out of the Eastern Bloc. They're, they're all shackled with guilt because of all the madness that went on in the war where they started to murder people and murder civilians. They genuinely went crazy and they didn't achieve any high culture or high civilization or high future. It was all spent and wasted and a mistake was made. And so what happened? Was it a catastrophe because these people started to play with the occult thinking that they were cool and ended up getting destroyed by it by summoning the wrong thing? Were they not capable of managing the magic well enough? Were they combated by a people who had a superior form of magic? Remember Alistair Crowley was floating around in England at the time? Maybe their magic won in contrast with the German magic or something like this? Is this all just bunkus and nonsense that people make up to keep themselves entertained on the History Channel? Who knows? Certainly I don't. I am just a boyo. I'm not suggesting that we all gather together and summon ritual of real magic so we can break through the astral plane, enter into the fifth dimension and discover technological powers that unlock the secrets of the earth and transform ourselves into ubermensch. I'm not talking about that stuff at all. I'm just analysing this stuff as a fan of history and a fan of psychology and I wish you the best. May you stay juicy. Bye bye.